Okay, open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 14. Um, thinking this story has got a lot to live up to after those songs, man. I'm just like, my heart's pumping. <laughs> I'm like, that was awesome. I loved it. Uh, it is an awesome story. Actually, this story, Genesis chapter 14, reminds me a little bit, and some of you nerds out there are just going to like get real excited, and I'm going to let you down, I think, but it reminds me a little bit of the Star Wars saga. <laughs> As you flip to Genesis chapter 14, here's what I mean. I'm not a Star Wars nerd. Some of you are, and you're going to come up to me later and tell me how I was wrong about it all, okay? But this is my synopsis kind of of Star Wars. No spoiler alerts, I hope. But in the movie Star Wars, there's an evil empire uh, that has control of the galaxy uh, when a small coalition of planets kind of stage a rebellion, right? They, they want to take life back for themselves, Uh only for the Empire to increase its aggression toward them until a young Jedi gathers a ragtag group to fight back, ultimately to rescue someone he loves, only to realize that there's a conflict brewing inside of him between good and evil. Uh, the tension is growing as you watch this young Jedi and he tries to, dis to discern which will he end up picking, good or evil? Now, some of you are going to tell me how I got Star Wars all wrong later, and that's okay. But here's how Genesis 14 reminds me of this. We see Abram, God's chosen man in Genesis, the patriarch, the father of, of many who yet has yet to have a child. And it's the question of will he live by faith or will he take matters into his own hands? And we see in Genesis 14, Abram comes to the aid of someone he loves. He fights alongside and for rebels, rebels who are fighting against an empire of sorts to protect the promised land. And then, like we said, to rescue someone he loves. But once again, as Genesis says over and over, kind of puts up this tension before us with Abram, he's discovering his own inner conflict, not between good and evil necessarily, but the choice between faith in God's promises or to take matters into his own hands. So Genesis itself, by the way, can be kind of like to us a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? It feels like uh, we don't really understand what's happening. The names are confusing and, and the story is big. And, and, but this is our story. And this is why we're studying Genesis. It's, it's the beginning of us, which starts not with us, but with God. We discover where we came from, why we exist. All of this is happening in, G in Genesis. And then when we see that God created us, along with creation to flourish and to be blessed, that then humans twisted it and broke it. But it doesn't stop there. Even though we rejected God and rebelled against him, God continually pursues humanity. We've seen this through Genesis to bless them despite their rebellion. And then we also see kind of the beginnings of the end. What God is beginning to do to ultimately repair and restore everything, including the fullness of blessing and life with his people. This is kind of the big story. So we see more than just a story, more than just names that are hard to pronounce like Star Wars, uh, more than places we've never heard of. We see us, 
because we see God for who he truly is. And so we're going to read Genesis 14, which is a story that really could change how we see everything. So track with me. And the reason I set this up with Star Wars is because this, this chapter is a lot of names and places that you've never heard of and that you may never hear of again. But just hang on. It's a great story. Genesis 14. In those days, King Amraphel of Shinar, King Arioch of Elisar, King Kederleomer of Elam, King Tidal of Goyim, waged war against King Bera of Sodom, King Bersha of Gomorrah, King Shinab of Adma, and King Shemaber of Zeboim, as well as the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All of these came as allies to the Sidim Valley, that is, the Dead Sea. They were subject to Kederleomer for 12 years, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Kederleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva Kiriathaim, and the Horats in the mountains of Seir as far as El Paran by the wilderness. And then they came back to invade in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they defeated the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. Whew, okay, we survived that part. <laughs> Pretty. <laughs> Some Hebrew nerds out there like the Star Wars nerds that are like, man, you totally butchered all that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> What's going on here? Okay, we're going to keep reading this, but let me just pause to say what we just read was there are five kings of the north. These are the evil empire, so to speak. They've got an oppressive hold on the kings and the peoples of Canaan, which is the promised land. The people of the promised land rebel. We'll talk more about it here in the future, but that's the setting, okay? So now that we kind of wrapped our minds around that, let's keep reading. The king of Sodom the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, these are the rebels. They went out and lined up for the battle in the Sidim Valley against King Kederleomer of Elam, King Tidal of Goyim, King Amraphel of Shinar and King Arioch of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now, the Sidim Valley contained many asphalt pits as the kings, uh, excuse me, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, but the rest fled to the mountains. The four kings, the empire, took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. They also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom, and they went on. Now, one of the survivors came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol, and the brother of Aner. They were bound by a treaty with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been, had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he he and his servants deployed against them by night, defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah to the north of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. 
Abraham just like showed up and dominated. If you didn't catch that, right? This is Abram. We know now as Father Abraham. Who knew? This guy's like a Jedi, okay? He just showed up and took care of business. And after Abram returned from defeating Cater Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shiva Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you so you can never say I made Abram rich. I'll take nothing except what the servants have eaten. But as for the share of the men who came with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, they can take their share. That is a chunk with a lot going on. And when you read that whole thing together, you might go, what does the beginning really have to do with the end? Other than Abram won, and then something has to be done with the spoils of the victory of war. Let me kind of recap this huge chapter in three parts. Uh, First, we saw the rebellion, right? We've got the kings of the north, the four kings coming to uh, basically show their power over the kings of the promised land, the kings of Canaan, the Amalekites. Uh, We've got Sodom, Gomorrah. These are not favorable in the eyes of God, as we've already seen in chapter 13. Yet God comes to their aid through Abram, presumably because of Lot. But the rebellion was essentially the kings of Canaan responding to the kings of the north, who had this oppressive grip on him. Basically, they would say, the kings of the north, as long as you keep paying us tribute, everything's good. You can be subject to us. You can live your own lives. Just sort of like the colonies being taxed by England before the American Revolution. It's like, hey, as long as you, you know, the check cashes, we'll leave you alone. And then uh, the the kings of Canaan kind of pull like a 80s hairband, twisted sister kind of moment. And they're like, we're not going to take it. We're not going to take it anymore, right? And so they rebel. Some of you parents of teenagers may have noticed that uh, they rebelled in the 13th year. (laughs) But the kings of the north say, you're going to take it. We're going to come and, and make you take it. In fact, they show up with such force that they send the kings of Canaan fleeing to where some even die in their retreat. Then they say, not only are you going to take it, we're going to take all your stuff and people, including Lot, Abram's nephew. Now, you remember Lot from chapters 12 and 13. The end of chapter 11, we learned Lot's father had died. Chapter 12, we saw how uh, Lot had been taken under Abram's household, presumably as a, a way for Abram to just have a, a, an heir in pocket. 
if God doesn't somehow provide a miraculous son to Abram and his wife Sarai, who are not able to have children, then he's got this nephew that he can be like a father to, that can inherit everything. And then on his own way, uh, Abram could fulfill God's promise. That's not God's plan, right? And so we saw as Abram returns to faithfulness in chapter 13 and back to the land of promise, that he separates with Lot. He gives him a preference. Lot, choose where would you like to go? I want to give you first choice of the land. And Lot responds by going outside of the land and going out from under Abram's household to Sodom or the vicinity thereof, which is full of sinful men, according to chapter 13. So what Lot's doing is making a rebellious choice against God and against Abram. And he ends up in the crosshairs of the king Caterlaomer, who's coming to reestablish his rule and reign over the kings of Canaan. So Lot's in a pickle. This is the rebellion, and this is what happens. Yet God sends Abram to rescue him. This is what verse 13 through 16 are about. This is where the action really happens. Abram unleashes his inner Jedi, right? And we think this is all. Abram must be just an incredible fighter, right? He has 318 trained men in his household. He's got these three brothers who live nearby in the Oaks of Mamre, owned by this man Mamre and his two brothers. Let's rally the troops, right? Let's exercise our covenant together. Let's, I have your back, you got my back. Well, let's go rescue my nephew. And they go and they camp out at night and they, in the middle of the night, pounce on these four kings of the north who had just sent the five kings of Canaan running and somehow defeat them in this incredible sweeping victory, not only defeating them, pushing them, pursuing them all the way to Dan, back outside of the land of Canaan, back to where they came from, but then also recovering all of the people and goods that had been taken. Abram just shows up. And this is a moment where we could say, Abram is so awesome, like he's the true hero of the story, right? There's a couple of clues here that actually make me think that Abram's not the true hero of the story. Uh, think about this. Um, the first word, first time the word Hebrew is used is right here in Genesis chapter 14. Hebrew becomes a, a way of knowing God's people. It's sort of like they're, um, like, like we would say, you know, we are Americans in, in some way, right? So this is before the name Israel has been established. That comes down the line. But for them, they're called Hebrews. They're just the Hebrew people. It's a name that means outsider or foreigner or nobody. And this is really what Abram is in this situation. I mean, you've got kings of the north. Kings of Canaan, these important people and important things and full of goods and possessions and people who are subject to them. And then here you got this nobody who comes along, yet the nobody is victorious. The foreigner ends up being the one driving everybody else out of the promised land. Then we see how he only has 318 trained men versus who knows how many. We see in verse 20 confirmed, if you're looking further on in the text, that even Melchizedek, the priest of Salem, says this is God's victory. God is the hero of the story. Abram would not have been victorious without God and his promise. In fact, we might be thinking that, that 
God chose Abram because of his ability to fight so that he could do things like this. But the reality is, is that Abram chose to fight because of faith in God to fulfill his promise, to bless those who bless him and curse those who treat him with contempt, which is the promise in chapter 12, verse 3. So this is not a story of Abram's heroics. It's a story of God as the true and most powerful king. And so the rescue comes not by an uncle who just shows compassion on his nephew, but by a God who teaches the uncle to show compassion on his rebellious nephew. God is the one who is extending grace to Lot, rebellious Lot, by putting Abraham in a difficult situation and asking him to do a difficult thing in order to see Lot redeemed. Now, Lot, ultimately, if you read in the chapters going forward, kind of rejects the redemption, and he goes back to Sodom. And he continues to live in sin, but for now, Abram recovers Lot. He recovers all the spoils in order to restore them to their original owners, which, by the way, exhibits great faith. We were talking about uh, the Jedi in Star Wars, who has this inner tension between good and evil and how Abram's story in Genesis goes up and down between will he choose faith or will he take matters into his own hands. And in chapter 14, we see an incredible exhibition of faith. Abram trusts that God's promise will be fulfilled that the land will be protected, that God will give the land to Abram and his descendants, that Abram doesn't have to take it for himself, but he can actually give the spoils back to their original owners, return the people to, from whence they came, and then trust God to do what God wants to do in God's timing. This is an incredible act of faith in Abram's rescue of Lot. And then Abram's presented with a way to respond. There are two kings in verse 17 through 24, the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. The king of Salem is a man named Melchizedek, sort of a mysterious figure in the Bible. He shows up again in the Psalms. He shows up again in the New Testament. And, uh, and we really don't have a lot of information about him, except here we see he's the king of Salem, and he's a priest of the Most High God. He's a king and a priest meaning he's over people, but he's also under God, being a bridge builder between people and God. This is what the accident of priest does. And this is before the order of the priest has been established. And so this is a really interesting person for, Moses, uh, for Abram to meet. So he meets another person who worships the one true God right here in the land of Canaan in a place called Salem, which is translated peace. You've heard the word shalom. This is the Hebrew word, peace. We morphed into the name of the city where this people lives, which will then be called Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So here we have an incredible moment where Abram meets this mysterious king priest of peace who brings out bread and wine and, and, and says to Abram, you're blessed by God who gave you victory over your enemies and God be blessed God most high the creator God and then there's a second king the king of Sodom 
which as we said in chapter 13, Sodom is sort of equated in Genesis with sinfulness, with evil. You see the dichotomy here, the contrast, peace versus evil. And what does the king of Sodom do? While the king of Salem, Melchizedek shows up and says, you're blessed. The king of Sodom, whom Abram had just rescued, by the way, shows up and says, give me the people and I'll give you the possessions. It's like making a deal with Abram. He's not really in much of a position to make a deal. I mean, he was just running for his life. And if it weren't for Abram, he would probably be up in the mountains somewhere, hiding out. He wouldn't have a people. He wouldn't have possessions. If it weren't for Abram and Abram's God, yet he says, give me the people and I'll give you the possessions. And Abram responds. One seeks Abram's blessing. The other seeks to barter with Abram. Now, when he extends this offer to Abram, the king of Sodom, to say, give me the people and I'll give you. He wasn't just trying to say like, hey, let's, let's just make a deal and go our separate ways. What he was saying was, if, if you give me the people, I'll give you the possessions. I can make you rich. And you know what? You'll always be in that relationship with me where I'm the one who gave you what you needed. It's a relationship of subjectivity that by taking this deal, Abram would become subject to the king of Sodom. The same way the king of Sodom was subject to Cater Laomer. And so Abram is presented with these two options. And his response is incredible. The response to the king of Salem is that he gives a tenth of all the spoils as a, as a sign of allegiance to say, you are with my God and because of that, I am with you. There's an alliance here. This is a, uh, the first tithe in the Bible, right? It simply just means that he gave a tenth and he gives it to the king of Salem as a way to say, we're together in this. There's a, a common bond here in the most high God, the creator of heaven and earth, right? So this is how Abram responds by giving. And he responds to the offer made by the king of Sodom by rejecting it. Abram says, there's no way that I'm going to let another king of the world make me rich again. Because the first time that happened in chapter 12 in Egypt, it led to all kinds of problems for Abram, right? In fact, if you go back to chapter 12, you look and see how Abram was actually at that point of unfaithfulness, he was willing to give his wife, to sacrifice the people, to give a king people in his household in exchange for possessions, which is the same deal Sodom, the king of Sodom offers him here. But because Abram came back to the land of faithfulness, because Abram returned to the place where he had built an altar to the Lord, because Abram had returned to the promised land and his heart was full of faith toward God, he was able to then withstand the offer of the king of Sodom and say, I don't need you to make me rich because I have a king who is above all kings, who is where true riches are found. You see the growth in Abram here as he gets to this point where he can reject the offers of the world and respond freely to the goodness of God.
and the blessing of God. So Abraham realizes where true riches are found and the story wraps up. And he gives the people, the men that came with, they can have their share of the spoils, right? We've got this incredible saga. But what just happened and what does it really mean for us? I think it's good in a situation, a story like this, to put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites. The Israelites who were receiving Genesis for the first time. Now, we've talked about this before. If you weren't around, let me just kind of recap. Genesis was originally given most likely to the Israelites while they were wandering in the wilderness, having escaped from Egypt in slavery. You can read about that story in your Bible book of Exodus, right? The very next book after Genesis, you can read that story where God delivers his people from hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. Uh, You might remember some of the highlights, the 10 plagues that God plagued Egypt with and Pharaoh, and then God opens up the Red Sea, they move through on dry land, and yet the people still weren't faithful to God. Uh, So God punishes them by this wandering season in their lives, and they were just wandering in the wilderness, and they were being sustained by God day by day by day, and only one day at a time. And they were being confronted by other nations. They were having to fight for their own lives. And all the while wondering, where are we going? Knowing that God has promised us this land for ourselves, which by the way, goes back to Abram in Genesis 12. But when are we going to get there? How do we get there? Where do we go? All these questions. And by the way, who is this God? I mean, we just came out of hundreds of years in slavery in Egypt where there are all kinds of gods. Pharaoh himself considered to be a God. And it seemed like everything was going well for them. Who is this God that brought us out of slavery and now is just making us wander in the wilderness? This is the question in Genesis 14. Who is God? In particular, what kind of king is God? Did you notice the repetition of the word king in this chapter? 28 times the word king is repeated in chapter 14. Which makes me think that the Israelites who are still living in the not yet, who are on their way to the promised land, the Israelites who are just developing courage to face another day, the Israelites who are learning contentment with their circumstances are being asked to follow this one true God who is king over all. Yet the question is, what kind of king is this God? Well, Genesis 14, as they read this story of their ancestor Abram and how Abram showed up to a battle of kings, that he was not equipped or qualified, but there was a king that he served that was above all of the others, and his name is God Most High. And so the Israelites will now understand by reading this story in Genesis 14, the same way we do, that we are in a battle of kings. We're in a battle of kings. No, we don't have to worry about our mayors or our governors or our presidents or our legislators or anything. Do you know the king we are most threatened by? Ourselves. This is the bend of people today. And this is, roots all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve chose to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was an attempt to claim autonomy from God, that I don't need God to be my leader. I don't need God to rule and reign over my life. I don't have to follow his rules. I can make my own rules. I can be my own king. 
And this is the same trap we fall into. You know what happens when there are, I don't know, 150 people in this room? If there are 150 kings in this room, what happens when you disagree? What happens when your territories cross? It causes a fight, right? In a world where everybody wants to be their own king, nobody will ever get along and nobody will ever succeed. We will end up just killing each other, right? But what kind of God, what kind of king is God? He is the only king, the most high king, the only sovereign. He is preeminent. This is what Genesis 14 is about. All the kings of the world, nobody compares to the most high God. He is El Elyon, the Hebrew name for God that means most high God. He is the king of kings, the only sovereign. So when Israel escapes Egypt and wanders in, in the wilderness and they're faced with other nations and clans and tribes and other kings who want to subdue them and make them subject to them, they can be reminded our God is the most high God. He is the king over all kings. And this is the same news for us. What kind of king is God? He is the king over you, the king over me, and nobody can ever change that. He's the king who will always win. So he's preeminent. Second thing we see in chapter 14 is that he's a pursuer. This is how Abram won the battle, is by pursuing. And this is what God does. God is a king who pursues his people. Keep in mind, he had no, Abram had no formal responsibility for Lot, right? We talked about how chapter 13, they separated from one another. Yet what was here was while Lot had walked away from God, left Abram's household, left the land of promise, God was showing grace to Lot by sending Abram to recover and rescue and redeem Lot. Lot, who had rebelled, God said, I'll, I'll go to great lengths to rescue and redeem people, even rebellious people. This is a theme of Genesis that God pursues people who have rebelled with blessing, right? God pursues Lot through Abram in this situation to show him grace. It reminds me of Psalm chapter 23. If you're aware, the Psalm is a very popular one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you skip down to verse six, it says, surely goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. This is the kind of king God is. And for the Israelites who had escaped Egypt and were wandering in the wilderness, they needed to see that despite their rebellion, God was pursuing them, not to put them down, but pursuing them with grace and mercy. He was following after them to bring them back to himself, to bless them and lead them to a life of flourishing once again. It's a faith-inspiring thing when you realize that the king over all is the one who wants me, who comes after me. It doesn't take us finally deciding that I will go find God. God has already pursued you. And this is the promise, that his grace is coming after you. Maybe you feel that today. Maybe you feel like you've been distant from God. You've been wandering from him. You've been rebellious against him for quite some time. And maybe you've made an effort to come back to him. I want you to know that your effort to come back to him is a response to him pursuing you already. And he's got grace for you. He's got mercy for you. 
He wants to redeem your rebellion. So God's a pursuer. But God's also a possessor. What kind of king is God? He's not only the God who is over all things, he's the God who owns all things. If the theme of kingship is the main theme in Genesis chapter 14, the secondary theme in Genesis chapter 14 is possessions. It's traced all the way through. In fact, there's five times that the Hebrew word for possessions is used. Uh, Let's look at it together. I just want to show you a couple of these spots in verse uh, 10, uh, verse 11, excuse me. It says that the four kings took all the goods. It's the Hebrew word uh, rekush for possessions. Verse 12, they also took Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, for he was living in Sodom. It says in uh, verse 13 that um, Abram was bound with Mamre and these brothers by a treaty, bound by a treaty, meaning they were owners of a treaty. They were possessors of a treaty together. Verse 16, uh, he brought back all the goods, the possessions, and also his relative Lot and his goods Verse 21, the king of Sodom says to Abram, give me the, Abram, give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. So there's something that's happening here. There's a tension that is caused in our lives when we're faced with the opportunity to have possessions. Now, the reality is that possessions generally possess us. But the king, the most high God, who's over all, is the real owner. Did you look at what Melchizedek said about God in verse 19 and then what Abram repeats about God in verse 22? He is the creator of heaven and earth. Creator. Now, your Bible might have a little footnote in here, but the Hebrew word for creator is the word possessor. Possessor. Owner. So the question is, who really owns all this stuff? I mean, the kings of Canaan, they have all this stuff, but then Cater Leomer and his posse can come down and take all of it. I mean, are they the real owners? What God is saying through Genesis chapter 14 is, I am the owner. You ever heard of a kid who yells out at his parents and mad at him and says, get out of my room. What's that parent do? Your room? Excuse me? Who pays the bills around here? Who's the real owner? Who's the real owner? This is the question that we're facing with our life, right? What kind of king is God? God is a possessor. He's the true and real owner over all things. And lest we be like the child who, uh, you know, immaturely calls out my stuff, God is reminding us here that he is the one who truly owns it all. Not only do we not really own it, even the ones who seem to be in charge of everything don't really own anything. God is the possessor, okay? So God is the possessor. He's also the promise keeper. You see what happens here is there's a contrast between kings. You've got the kings of the earth who have a lot. They've got people subject to them. them. They've got people. They've got possessions. And you know what they want? They want more. They've got enough, yet they're after more. Contrasted with the one true king, the king over all, who says, I am the possessor of all things. Do you know what I want? I want to bless. 
I want to give. And there's a contrast here. Kings of the earth are always looking for more. The king over all wants to bless and give and fulfill his promise to his people. So he protects the land through Abram, the land that ultimately will become his descendants. He gives Lot, recovers Lot from from slavery, gives him a second chance, restores his possessions to him. I mean, this is God who has everything yet freely gives and seeks to keep his promise. This is God. He's the king. He's the true king. But then the second question we got to ask is, what kind of people are subject to this kind of king? If God is the true king, if he's the one sovereign over all, who are we? Well, I think there's three answers here. We are fighters. Like Abram, we are people who fight as partners in the promise. Abram responds to the need with action. He gets involved, and, and yes, this is a fight between flesh and blood uh, over territories and possessions and people. But what we know is that in God's kingdom, even from the very beginning, the enemy has not ever been just flesh and blood. All the way back to Genesis 3, we know the enemy who showed up in the garden and tempted Adam and Eve, he was not just a serpent. He was God's enemy who seeks to usurp God's throne. There's a spiritual battle that's waging here. And this is not just a battle between some kings in Canaan and some kings in the north. This is representative of the spiritual battle that's been happening since Genesis 3 and continues to happen all the way to today. We are in a spiritual battle. Ephesians in the New Testament talks about this. It talks about how there is a prince of the power of the air who's drawn us into the worldly ways. Yet God has given us salvation. He's equipped us with spiritual armor to join the battle. So like Abram, we can get involved. We can fight even when we feel outnumbered, even when we feel outmatched. We can get in the story that God is writing to redeem all of creation from evil and sin and restore it to blessing. We can live and fight for heaven on earth. This is the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, that we would pray that, uh, that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the life God calls his people to, to fight as partners in the promise. See, Abram and God were partners there was a covenant relationship here. It's going to be renewed in chapter 15 next week, but it began in chapter 12 when God made his promise to Abram. It's a covenant, meaning that they are partners together. We started our morning with prayer this morning, 8.30 every week. We have prayer here, and anybody's welcome to come to that. And uh, there's a plan where we kind of walk through things to pray for. Uh, today, we prayed for our ministries of our church. And uh, Kendall Harper, first thing, first words out of her mouth was, God doesn't need you. I thought, I needed to hear that today. God doesn't need you, yet God chooses you to partner with you in his work because he wants you. 
And this is what's happening with Abram. God chose Abram to partner with him in his work because he wanted Abram, because he wanted to bless the world through Abram. And now Abram finally has the opportunity to do that. What he failed to do in chapter 12, he now has another opportunity to bless all the peoples of the world. So God doesn't need us. He wants us and he invites us to participate with him in the battle against flesh and blood even when the powers that be are not on our side. Whichever way an election goes doesn't change the call on our lives to join God in his work as partners to reclaim earth for heaven. This is the work he's called us to, even when the offers of the world look good in the moment, even when we're in a season of struggle or doubt even when things of the world look better than maybe what my life, things, people look richer and they're not following God. Like Pharaoh, they have everything they seem to need, yet here I am wandering in the wilderness. But still, we fight as partners in the promise and we reject the offers of the world. Second thing we do is we fight to see rebellious people rescued by God. Abram goes after Lot. It's a theme in Abram's relationship to Lot. Lot continues to rebel, and Abram continues to go after him. Let me just ask one question here. Do the people you know who are in rebellion to God, do they know that you are fighting for them to know the freedom and flourishing that comes with submission to God as the true king? We fight for rebellious people to be rescued by God. And then finally, we fight to see our own rebellion redeemed. Abram wasn't perfect. He had just failed. Chapter 12, verse 13, he returns to the land. He returns to promise, returns to blessing. Chapter 14, he's tested again. What will he choose? He chooses faithfulness, but we know he doesn't always choose faithfulness. But what he does is he pursues redemption. He fights to see his rebellion redeemed. We saw how he reversed course at the end of chapter 14 that I'm not gonna give up people for possessions anymore. I've bought into that lie before. Now I'm gonna focus on what God wants for me. I don't need possessions. He's the one who can truly enrich my life. I'm gonna fight to see my own rebellion redeemed. And then what we see in his relationship with Melchizedek is he gives a tenth of everything, a tithe. Now, this is where people get uncomfortable and you go, oh, you're gonna talk about tithing. (laughs) Well, it's in the Bible, so we gotta talk about it, okay? Abram responds to God's goodness and blessing in his life through sacrificial giving of a tenth. Now, he does the tenth because that was a customary sign of allegiance to a king. He was aligning himself with Melchizedek because Melchizedek was from God. Melchizedek was a a man of God, a a fellow believer, someone who uh, wanted peace and blessing in the land. The same things Abram wanted. So he responds with the tenth. So what we say when we say we fight to see our own rebellion redeemed is as believers, we say there have been times in our lives before Christ that we took everything for ourselves But Jesus changes that. And now we see ourselves the way Abraham saw himself, that God was enough. 
that God would fulfill his promise, that God could be trusted, that I don't have to take matters into my own hands. I don't have to take my finances into my own hands. I mean, this is where Abram was. He had all the spoils. He could have kept them for himself. He could have said, this is my land now. Uh, God promised it to me and I'm taking it. Instead, he says, I'm going to restore everything to people. I'm going to give a tenth to Melchizedek as a show of alignment and allegiance with him under the most high God. And he says, I'm going to allow God to fulfill his purposes in my life. I'm going to wait on God's timing. And if it means I don't have anything right now, that's okay, because I believe God's faithful and he will come through. Even if I have a lack right now, that's okay, because I believe God's faithful and God will come through. This is what it means to, to fight to see our own rebellion redeemed is to fight to stay free from the tyranny of greed. This is what the tithe does. The tithe, historically, the, the customary gift to a king later becomes part of the Jewish law. Now we carry that through as a practice of believing people in the church. It's not just a rule to follow. It's not because the church needs your money or God needs your money. It's because... We are people who need our own rebellion to be redeemed. And if we don't, we'll be sucked back into that rebellion. We give a tithe to fight greed in our lives. It's an act of rebellion. Now, it's a hang-up for people. I totally get it. The question here is not whether or not a tenth is required. Uh, to be given to the church. The question is whether a tenth is sufficient to be given in response to the God who sacrificially and graciously rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light. A tenth is not even close to sufficient to make up for what God has done for us. He has given us this glorious inheritance along with Christ. Colossians chapter one is all about this. And so this is our response. A tenth is a starting place, right? We're rebelling against the enticement of greed, which the kingdoms of this world will use against us to keep a grip on us. This is what Sodom attempted, the king of Sodom attempted to do with Abram, to keep a grip on him, to put him in a subjective relationship. But Abram rebelled against it and he says, no, I don't need that. In fact, I'm gonna be generous. I'm gonna trust God. So the amount's not the issue, it's the motive. The question is, there's a king who's overall, who pursues us and wants our blessing. He leads us as partners into battle for his ultimate purpose, which is to restore the world and all people to himself, to restore everything to flourishing once again, where he can dwell with us and we can dwell with him in perfect harmony. This is where he's heading and he's inviting us into a partnership for that. So the question is, are we living in allegiance to that king? Or are we living in allegiance to another king? What's the evidence in my life that says I trust by faith the creator, the possessor of all things, the most high God? That's the question. So the saga continues. And we are pulled, just like Abram, to moments of faith, and we will fail in moments of faithlessness. The saga continues. And every day we are pursued with the mercy and grace of God 
who gives us another chance to live in restored relationship with him, to redeem our rebellion, and to enjoy life to the full. Genesis 14 is a wild story, but it ends in a God who's over all. So I want to close today by reading a New Testament passage, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Some instruction to a young pastor to reject greed, reject the allure of money, and just listen to it, and we'll close this way today. It says, but you, man of God, flee from these things, like greed. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life, which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God who gives life to all and of Christ Jesus who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you, keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. God will bring this about in his own time. Who is he? He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal power. Amen. Who will you follow today? What king will you serve today? Let me pray for us and then we'll be dismissed. God, thank you for your word that challenges us, that teaches us, that shapes us. And some of it's hard to comprehend, God, but we trust that you will use it to move us to live for you, to refine us into people who look more like people who are subject to you alone. God, you are a good king. Help us live in allegiance to you for your good kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for worshiping.